how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Genesis Part 5, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. There's a double thread running right through the Old Testament which requires an explanation. On the one side, the Old Testament claims that the God of the Jews is the God of the whole universe. Now, in those days, every nation had its own God, whether it was Baal or Isis or Moloch or whoever. So religion was strictly national and therefore all wars were religious between one God and another or between one God's people and another God's people. And therefore Israel's God, called Yahweh or being or always, was considered by other nations to be the national God of Israel. And since every nation had its God, that was understandable. But Israel herself claimed that her God was the God above all gods. That phrase is used in the Old Testament. They went even further and said, and our God is the only God who really exists. All the others are figments of human imagination. And then they went even further and said, it's our God who not only made but maintains the entire universe. Now such claims were of course offensive in the extreme and you find these claims made in Isaiah, particularly chapter 40, in the book of Job and in many of the Psalms. Now that's one side of this twofold thread that goes right through the Old Testament, that the God of the Jews is in fact the God of the whole universe. The other side of that is that the God of the whole universe is the God of the Jews and they were really claiming that the Creator of everything that is, the most distant stars flung into space, had actually made a very personal and intimate relationship with one little group of people on earth, that the God of the universe had become the God of the Jews. In fact, he had identified himself with one family on earth, with a grandfather, a father and a son, that the God of the entire universe was now calling himself the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now can you imagine how other nations reacted to that? It's an incredible claim. Now this astonishing twofold claim that the God of the Jews is the God of the universe and the God of the universe, especially the God of the Jews, is explained in Genesis. And without Genesis, you would not have any ground for this astonishing claim. As I've said before, if you only had a Bible that began at Exodus, you would think, well, this is just about the God of the Jews. But Genesis says, no, it's the God of the whole universe who has become the God of the Jews and is not embarrassed to call himself by just three men who belong to that tiny people. Now remember that Genesis actually covers more time than the whole of the rest of the Bible put together. From Exodus to the last bit of Revelation covers around 1500 years, a millennium and a half, whereas Genesis covers the entire history of the world from the beginning right through to Joseph. 
which is far longer. So when you read the Bible, you realise that time has been terribly compressed in Genesis. It covers many, many centuries as compared to the whole rest of the Bible. It's a longer period. Then when you look into Genesis itself, you find a very strange proportion of space given to the different parts of history. Chapters 1 to 11 form a quarter of the book, quite a short section, and yet cover a very long period, centuries, and also talk about many people, even many nations. But the second half of Genesis, chapters 12 to 50, which we're now looking at, is a much longer section. It's three times as big as 1 to 11. It's three quarters of the book yet it only covers a few years, a very short period, and it only covers a few people, in fact one family, and only four generations of that family. There's a huge disproportion here if it claims to be the history of our world, and yet it's quite deliberate and that proportion has a message in itself. So there's a kind of slowing down of history in the book of Genesis. There's a zooming in from the whole world and all its people to one family, and that is very deliberate because we're looking at history from God's point of view. And God began by dealing with the whole human race and the whole of history, but then He focused in, He zoomed in on this one family as if they were the most important family who ever lived, and from one point of view they were. They were part of that very special line from Seth of people who called on the name of the Lord, and people who call on His name are in His mind, His eyes, more important than anybody else, because they are the people through whom He can fulfil His plans and purposes. So that's why we have this very strange proportion. You see, the Bible is not God's answer to our problems, it's God's answer to God's problem. I wish more people realised this. They present often the Gospel as God's answer to our needs. Are you lonely? Are you unhappy? Do you, does your life have no purpose? Then Jesus can meet your need. You've heard that kind of preaching. But actually the Bible is not about our needs at all. It's about God's problem. And God's problem is what do you do with a race that doesn't want to know you or love you or obey you? What's He to do? That's His problem. And one solution to that problem is to wipe them out and start again. He tried it, but what I didn't mention in the last talk was that when Noah came out of the ark, one of the first things that he did was to get drunk and expose himself. And from then on the whole sad, sordid story began all over again. So even with Noah and his family, it didn't work. So God had to think up something else, but He already knew what He was going to do to save the human race from themselves, but rather to solve His problem. If somebody asks me, why did God create us human beings? Then I give a very simple answer to that. He had one son already and He enjoyed that son so much He wanted a bigger family. Now I can't express it more plainly than that. That's why you and I are here, because God wanted more than one son. He wanted a bigger family and that's what He created us for. But the tragedy is He finished up saying, I wish we'd never had our children. 
Now what's he going to do about it? Well, he knew, and with Abraham he began his solution to his problem, what to do with a rebellious human race. Now he chose to do it through one particular part of the human race, and philosophers call this the scandal of particularity. What a phrase, but I want to explain it, it's important. The scandal of particularity is why should God only deal with the Jews? Why didn't he save the Chinese through the Chinese and the Americans through the Americans, the British through the British? It's an offence to us that he chose to solve his problem through the Jewish people. There are two poets, one of whom is called William Norman Ewer and the other Cecil Brown. They both wrote very short poems. William Norman Ewer, who only died in 1976, wrote this poem, How Odd of God to Choose the Jews. Brilliant poetry and certainly one of the most widely quoted poems of all time. So along came Cecil Brown and he decided to write a second verse and his second verse went, But not so odd as those who choose a Jewish God but spurn the Jews. <laughs> and those two verses sum up what philosophers call the scandal of particularity. Well, we had three children and uh, when we, I brought sweets for them, I could do one of two things. I could either bring one bag of sweets and give that to one of them and say, now share that with your brother and sister, or I could bring three bars of chocolate and give them one each. Now guess which brought peace to the house, <laughs> see? And it was much easier to give them each some sweets. But we wanted to create a family and if you're going to do that, then you must give the sweets to one and let them share it with the others. That's God's way. Instead of sending His Son to be an American and a Chinese and an Indian and whatever, he chose the Jews. He sent his son to be a Jew and he's still a Jew and he said to the Jews, now you share that with everybody else. That's how he chose to save us and it's his choice, you can argue with it, but that was his choice and that's why he is calling himself the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Chapters 12 to 50 are basically the stories of just four men and yet three of them are classed together and one is quite different. We're only going to look at the three in this talk and the fourth generation in a separate talk. He's quite different. God never called himself the God of Joseph. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, just the three generations and we've got to ask why. And as we study the stories of these three men, we're going to notice that there's a kind of counterpoint, a kind of uh, contrast between these men and one of their relatives. So the counterpoint to Abraham is his nephew, Lot. The counterpoint to Isaac is his stepbrother, Ishmael. The counterpoint to Jacob is his twin, Esau. You notice that those relations seem to get closer and closer, from nephew to stepbrother to twin. And God is again showing there are still two lines running through the human race in very stark contrast to each other and the stories invite you 
to line yourself up with one line or the other. Are you a Jacob or an Esau? Are you an Ishmael or an Isaac? Are you an Abraham or a Lot? And as you read through these chapters, that's the question you should ask yourself. Who is your kind? Who do you line up with? So it's basically the story of four men. Now there are objections from those who don't want to believe these chapters, who say they're legends or sagas, the kind of folk tale that uh, arises. There may be a nucleus of truth in them, but they're simply legends that have grown up around these men. I don't see why people should object like that. For one thing, the novel as such is a recent form of literature. Novels were totally unknown in Abraham's day. Nobody wrote invented stories. Fiction is just not there. It's not a form of writing in that day. They wrote down what happened. They didn't stretch their imagination, much less engage in what is now called faction, which is a mixture of fact and fiction, and many TV plays are faction. One of the things that tells me these stories are true is that there are no miracles in them. You'd have thought if people were going to invent stories about great men of God, they'd have attached all kinds of miracles. There are hardly any miracles in the book of Genesis. Have you ever noticed that? There are dozens in the book of Exodus, but hardly any. Yet legend is usually stuffed with miraculous or magical things happening. These stories don't have that. Furthermore, nobody has found a single anachronism in these stories. Let me tell you what I mean. If Genesis said that Abraham picked up the telephone and got in touch with Isaac, that's an anachronism. <laughs> and you just know that's false because there were no telephones in those days, much less faxes. So if you saw a telephone or a fax mentioned in Genesis, immediately you'd be suspicious. But in fact, the cultural details that emerge in these stories, archaeology has shown to be totally true to the day in which they lived. So really I believe there's no reason whatever for doubting the truthfulness of these stories. The one feature that uh, natural explanation can't account for is that angels play quite a part here, but they do right through the Bible, especially during the days of Jesus and even more in the book of Revelation. So if you've got problems with angels, you've got problems with the whole Bible. But apart from that, these stories are terribly ordinary. They're about ordinary men and women who are born, who fall in love, who marry, have children and die. So what's difficult about that? They keep sheep and goats and cattle and grow a few crops. So what's the problem with that? They disagree, they quarrel, they fight. So what's new? They erect tents, they build alt altars and they worship God. All of these things are totally within the range of normal human experience. So what's different about these stories? The answer is God talks to them and they talk to Him. They hold conversations. The God of the entire universe makes a friend called Abraham. That's a wonderful epitaph. Wouldn't you like that on your gravestone? Friend of God. It was God who called him. That's my friend, Abraham. Now that is incredible, isn't it, that the God who flung all the stars out there says, he's my friend, this man Abraham. That is the scandal of particularity. People can't cope with a God who makes personal friends. No, they feel that somehow it's not on, and yet that is the truth of what happens here. 
Now the big question is why should God choose to identify himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob or to give them their Hebrew names, Avram, Isaac and Yaakov? Why should he identify himself with them? What's so special about them? That's the question people have been asking ever since. What's so special about the Jews? Why should they be the chosen people and not us? Or that's the implication when they say, why should they be the chosen people? You can almost hear them saying to themselves, and not us, because we're so much more important or gifted or whatever than them. It's not true. But the answer lies in God's sovereign choice. Not arbitrary choice, sovereign choice. The one thing that is quite clear is that these three men had no natural claim on God. God freely initiated the relationship with them. They couldn't say, we claimed that relationship. And in fact, on each of the generations, it is striking that the son who would normally inherit from the father didn't, because in those days the eldest son inherited the family business and the family wealth, and yet in each generation the God God chooses not the eldest but the younger son. He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, not Esau, as much as to say, nobody has a natural claim on my love. It's just my love that I give to you. So it was not a question of straight heredity through the eldest son, neither Isaac nor Jacob were the firstborn, and what they inherited was a free gift every time. So they had no natural claim. More striking is the fact that none of these three men had a moral claim on God. Not one of the three could claim to be better than everybody else. In fact, the Bible is an honest book and tells us that all three of them were liars. All three of them. We are not given stained glass pictures of these three great saints. We are given a picture of very ordinary men like us who had their weaknesses. Both Abraham and Isaac lied through their teeth about their own wives to save their skins. So what have they got that others haven't? Why should God choose them? And Jacob was the worst of the three. There's not one of you would like to have Jacob as a relative. You'd be scared stiff of what was going to happen to your money or anything else. He was a schemer. Mind you, he was paid back. I cannot read one verse in the Bible without giggling, and it's the verse, and lo, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> I mean, you know the story, don't you? It's the first morning of his honeymoon. <laughs> and he's got the ugly sister he went to bed in the dark and she was veiled all through the wedding and he'd worked seven years to get the pretty sister and his father-in-law's palmed off the ugly Now, if it happened to you, you wouldn't laugh, but if it happened to your best friend, <laughs> well, I mean, the humour in the Bible comes across, doesn't it? But the lesson, behind that, the lesson behind that verse is very profound. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Here's the man who cheated his own blind, aged father and now somebody's cheating him. He can't complain about that, can he? That's the bite a bit. These are very human men. They have weaknesses. They make mistakes. They do the wrong thing. 
and some right things too. So why should God say, I'm the God of Ephraim and Isaac and Yaakov? Well, we must search these chapters for something more. All of them were bigamous, even polygamous. What did they have then? The answer is there is one thing marked out these three men. It's a very simple thing. Faith. These men believed in God. And God can do wonders when a man believes. God would rather have a believing man than a good man. In fact, he even said to Abraham that his faith went down in God's book as righteousness. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. The best thing you can ever do is to believe in God. Jesus once said, when he was asked, what must we do to do the will of God? What does God want us to do? And Jesus was quietly, he said, believe on the one he sent. That's all. Faith is the beginning of a good life. You may do many good deeds, but if you're not a believer in God, where does that leave you? And God reckoned Abraham's faith was righteousness. And Isaac shared that faith and Jacob had that faith too in different ways, for they were very different people, different personalities, different temperaments, but the one common thing was they had faith and they showed it in very different ways, as I've said. Abraham showed it by leaving Ur of the Chaldees. I thought you might be interested to see this. That's um, a big ziggurat, as they're called, a tower reaching to heaven in Ur of the Chaldees where Abraham lived. It was a very impressive place, was Ur. I thought you'd be interested in this. That's a typical fireplace in a house in Ur in Abraham's day. Would you believe it? They were a highly sophisticated, cultured city, terribly advanced for their age. And God said to a man sitting by a fire like that, I want you to live in a tent for the rest of your life. And the man was 75. Would you leave a fireplace like that and live in a tent up in the mountains where it's cold and snows in winter for the rest of your life at the age of 75? But if that old man had not done so, you wouldn't be sitting here now. That was Abraham. Just thought you'd be interested to see what an amazing place he left to live in a tent up in the hills and to look after a few sheep and goats because God said, I want you to come with me to a land you've never seen and you'll never see this land again. I want you to leave your family and friends. Abraham actually took his father and his other members of his family halfway, he got as far as Haran and they decided they'd had enough and they settled there. And Abraham went on alone with his nephew Lot, this old man, but he believed God and even believed that God could give him a son. Well, considering his wife was 90 at the time, it's no wonder that when the boy came they called him Joke. Isaac, Hebrew for laugh, <laughs> and they called the little boy Joke. What a joke, because Sarah, when she heard that she was going to be pregnant at that age, she just roared with laughter. And God heard that laughter too. But what faith! Mind you, his faith shook a little. He waited, first of all, 11 years and the boy never turned up and his wife got older and older. And when she suggested that Abraham try and get the boy through one of the young maidservants, he did. 
That's how Ishmael got born. But Ishmael was not a child of faith. He was a child of the flesh. And God didn't choose him. Now, don't ever think that that was unfair to Ishmael because God blessed Ishmael and he promised him that he'd be the father of many nations and produce 12 princes and he's the father of the Arab nations today. So God didn't put him down, but he didn't choose him, not for that line of faith because Ishmael didn't show faith, but he was blessed. And above all, Abraham exercised faith when God said, would you be willing to sacrifice your son, your only son for me? That was after another 16 years had passed and then the boy came, Isaac. You willing to sacrifice him for me? And it tells us that Abraham was willing to kill Isaac as a sacrifice because he believed God would raise him from the dead after he'd killed him. Now, considering that God never had done that before and had never caused a resurrection, that was some faith, but that's why he was prepared to do it. And the reason why he was prepared to believe that God would raise Isaac from the dead was because he had been able to conceive Isaac when he was a very old man, when, as the Bible says, his body was as good as dead. Therefore, he said, if God can make my dead body produce life, he can also raise my son from the dead. What faith! Isaac, his faith was shown that he submitted to the, be sacrificed when he was in his early thirties. Every picture I've ever seen of Abraham offering Isaac was a little boy of twelve. Is that the picture you've got in your mind? You'll never find a Jew believing that because the Jew knows his Bible and he doesn't divide it into chapters as we do. After the sacrifice of Isaac, the very next thing that happens is Sarah's death, the age of 127, when Isaac is 37. And that's the next event after the sacrifice. So Isaac was in his early 30s and he submitted to his father Abraham, an old man, and he did it on a mountain called Maria, which later became Golgotha or Calvary. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Well, I'm jumping ahead to the next talk, so let's get back to this one. Jacob, oh, by the way, Isaac also had faith that God could choose his wife for him and he accepted the wife of God's choice, Rebecca. Next thing to notice is that Jacob had faith. Mind you, at first he had faith in himself he could manipulate the blessing, and he did. And by scheming and deception, he got the blessing. But at least it showed someone who wanted to be blessed, which is good. But later God had to break that man, and he limped for the rest of his life. After wrestling with God all night, he walked like that for the rest of his life. But from then he really believed God and he believed that his twelve boys would become twelve tribes. These men, in spite of all their weaknesses and their failures and the mixture of good and bad, they shine as men who believed in God. They had faith. And therefore, when you look at the contrast in their relatives, you find people of flesh rather than faith. You find materialists rather than those with spiritual vision. We find a lot who chose deliberately 
to go down into the fertile Jordan Valley rather than live in the barren hills. Abraham and Lot's families had a bit of a disagreement and Abraham said, we better live separate. That's wisdom sometimes. And Abraham said, Lot, you can take first pick of this land. Where do you choose to live? And I'll go somewhere else. Amazing that Abraham should say that to Lot. Should have been the other way around. But Lot looked down into the valley where the Jordan River snaked through, where there was a jungle, very fertile, warm, tropical climate, and uh, the whole place appealed to Lot and he said, I'm going down to the valley. It looks good. Abram said, all right, I'll stay up in the hills. But God is a God of the hills. And Lot just went after his eyes. Now, not only do you see that in Lot, you see it in Ishmael and you see it in Esau. Esau would rather have a plate of instant soup than a blessing when his father died and he traded it for it. And the Esau syndrome is still around. People want everything now or next Tuesday at the latest. In fact, in the letter to the Hebrews, it tells us not to be like Esau who regretted his bargain and afterwards sought the blessing with tears, but there was no repentance there. So that we've got these three men of faith contrasted with these relatives of flesh and that kind of distinction runs through most families today. Those who live by faith, those who live by flesh. Now this contrast is also seen in their wives. And uh, you ladies, when you read these chapters, study the wives. They're very interesting. For one thing, Sarah, Rebecca and Rachel had one thing in common. They were all very beautiful, not glamorous, but beautiful. And glamour fades, but beauty increases. A friend of mine, a Methodist minister, had a beauty queen contest in his church. This was 35 years ago and shocked his congregation, but he made one condition and that is that every entrant had to be at least 60 years of age. And he wanted to try and demonstrate that glamour and beauty were two different things. Now it says of the three wives of the patriarchs, they were all beautiful and they had the lasting beauty of inner character. And they all submitted to their husbands. I'll go on to something else. <laughs> the wives of the others are again a contrast to the wives of the men of faith. There's an unusual shaped mountain at the south end of the Dead Sea called Lot's wife. It's the shape of a woman running away. But the, even Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. She looked back to the comfortable life they were leaving yet a life that was going to be judged by God. They lived in Sodom, a name that's become infamous in history. Well, that's what we're looking for when we read these chapters. We're looking for faith and flesh and the contrast between men and their wives. And you begin to understand why God says, I belong to this side of the family and not to this side. Let's just look at those three men in perhaps a little greater detail. God made a promise to Abraham on which we still rely. 
God began creation with one man and he began redemption with one man, this man Abraham, and he made a covenant. That's a beautiful word that goes right through even to when we take bread and wine together, for this is the blood of the new covenant. But this word covenant is very precious. It is not the word contract. It's not a bargain struck between two parties of equal power and authority. A covenant is entirely made by one party to bless the other, and the other has only two choices, to accept the terms or to reject them, but they cannot change them. And God makes covenants and he keeps them, and God swears by them. Have you ever heard God swear? When man swears, he swears by a power greater than himself. He often says, by heaven I'll do that, or by God I'll do that. Well, God, you see, has nobody higher to swear by, so he swears by himself. And where a human being might say, by God I'll promise to do that, God says, by myself I have sworn. And that's how God swears on oath, by myself, because there's nothing above God to swear by. So he swears by himself and he tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And he promised Abraham, virtually a covenant is a marriage, and the key words are always I will. And if you read Genesis 12, God says six times, I will, I will, I will, I will. And the truth is that the God of the universe married himself to this particular family and he promised them a place to live in. He gave them a, a little pit patch of land where the continents meet. The very centre of the landmass of the world is Jerusalem. And that's where the road from Africa to Asia and the road from Arabia to Europe cross near a little hill called Armageddon in Hebrew. And it's the crossroads of the world. He says, that's the place I'm going to give you forever. And they hold the title deeds to that place, whatever anybody else says, because God gave the title deeds to them, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Second thing God promised was to give them descendants, that they would always be descendants of Abraham on the earth. And the third promise was that he would use them to bless or to curse every other nation. Now that's the calling of the Jews, to share God with everybody, but that can cut both ways. God said to Abraham, those who curse you will be cursed, those who bless you will be blessed. And it is still the truth, as many have discovered. Now that was his covenant. In return, God expected first that every male Jew would be circumcised as a sign that they were born into that covenant, and second, that Abraham would obey God and do everything God told him, and that covenant is at the very heart of the Bible. And on the basis of that covenant, God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That phrase is repeated all the way through the Bible until the very last page, and there it is again, I will be their God and they will be my people. A lovely phrase, that. God wants to stick with us. He wants to stay with us and live with us. And as you know, at the very end of the Bible, God himself moves out of heaven and comes down to earth to live with us on a new earth forever. He wants to live with us. He wants to be family. He wants to be our Father. That was the whole purpose behind creating 
our universe and ourselves. Well, how am I doing for time? Two minutes. Then I better begin to leave it there. I'll just say this, that uh, Jacob, the most colourful of all, the mother's boy, even when he was born he was holding the heel of his twin brother Esau, the red-haired brother he had, grasping from the very beginning, but God dealt with him. Esau went actually to live in a place we now call Petra. Some of you may have seen these amazing temples carved out of the red sandstone. Esau went to live here and formed the nation of Edom and the hatred between Ishmael and Isaac is still in the Middle East, between Arab and Jew, but the hatred between Esau and Jacob has gone because the last Edomites were known by the name of Herod and it was a descendant of Esau that was king of the Jews when Jesus was born and who killed all the babies in Bethlehem to try and get rid of this descendant of Jacob who was born to be king. Finally, I'd just like to point this out. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob all showed their faith in one extraordinary way. They all, each of them, left to his son what he didn't possess. Abraham said, Son, Isaac, I'm leaving the whole land around you to you. And Isaac said to Jacob, I'm leaving the whole land to you. And Jacob said to his twelve boys, The whole land I leave in my will to you. And not one of them possessed any of it except one cave, the family vault in Hebron, the cave of Machpelah. Isn't that amazing? What faith to write a will leaving a whole land to your offspring when you've never possessed it but they believed that God had given it to them and that one day that whole land would be theirs. And finally, when I read Hebrews 11, I read about these men, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and I read about their faith and then it says this, all these were still living by faith when they died. They didn't just believe for a day or two. When they died, they were still believing because they never saw the promises fulfilled. And listen what it says now in that same chapter. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised to them. God had planned something better for us that only together with us would they be made perfect. <laughs> See, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are not dead. I've seen the tombs of their bodies in Hebron, but they're not dead. Jesus said God is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Not was, is. He's not the God of dead people, he's the God of the living. And we are worshipping the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They're still alive. And without us, they will not be made perfect. And they're among the great cloud of witnesses that's watching how we run because their perfection, their fulfilment of God's promises dependent on us too. We're all going to come into it together. When Jesus comes back to earth, you'll see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob coming back with, them, with him and together with us made perfect in God's sight. All those weaknesses taken away and perfectly reflecting the image of God. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.